Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. Before we get to our story, I would like to talk about the importance of sharing our podcast with friends and family. Word of mouth is one of the fastest ways our podcasts can grow. Show them how to add our podcast on their phone or their favorite listening device. And now, let's throw another log on the fire campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Stevie Utter, and with us as always is our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. In the early morning hours of August the 9th, 1969, a cult known as the Manson family, under the direction of its Cincinnati-born leader, Charles Manson, surprised five people at a posh Los Angeles home and slaughtered them. Among the dead was up-and-coming actress Sharon Tate, eight and a half months pregnant and the wife of director Roman Polanski. It was easily one of the most gruesome and sensational crimes of the century. But something a lot of people may have forgotten is that there was a survivor that night. Fifty yards from the crime scene was a dog sitter, Bill Gerritsen, an Ohio youth who was spending his summer in the caretaker's cottage in full view of the house. As a matter of fact, the first victim of the night was an acquaintance of Bill's who was shot dead after he left the cottage and was headed down the driveway. So how did four killers miss Bill? How did Bill not hear the screams and the gunshots? There has been a lot of speculation about how he escaped the violence. To be clear here, nobody would blame Bill if he had seen the two victims who were stabbed to death on the lawn outside his living room window, then fled and went into hiding. But Bill who was awakened by police the next morning, insisted he had never heard a thing. He said he was listening to records till nearly sunrise and that the music must have drowned out the noise. Later, at least one of the killers there that night told investigators they had gone to the cottage and found no one there. Because detectives found Bill's account of the night inconsistent and vague, and his survival of the attack nothing short of a miracle. He spent two days as suspect number one. Now maybe someday we'll circle back and do a story on Charles Manson. We've resisted because there is probably no killer in history who has been written about more, with the exception of perhaps Jack the Ripper and Ted Bundy. But tonight... Our focus is on the only guy to survive the Manson family's savagery. 19-year-old Bill Gerritsen from the city of Lancaster in Fairfield County. This is his story. William Gerritsen was born in Lancaster in 1949. That's in central Ohio, a city of about 40,000 people today, 
about 33,000 when Bill lived there. Bill lived with his mother, Mary, a 42-year-old divorcee on South Arlington Avenue. He attended Lancaster High School, where he wrestled for the Golden Gales and was interested in business education. He was short and slender, baby-faced, and had a full head of curly brown hair. People found him easygoing and likable, if sometimes a little mischievous. During high school, he worked at a service station and helped out his mom by buying his own clothes. Bill graduated in 1967 and got a job working in the shipping department for Anchor Hawking, a huge glassware company. In the fall of 68, he decided to hitchhike west. Bill had come of age during the Vietnam War, and he was eligible for the draft. He and a friend decided maybe they should go see some of the country before their number came up. It was while he was in California that he was picked up by Rudy Altobelli, a successful show business talent manager. Altobelli owned a large, beautiful home at 10050 Cielo Drive in fashionable Bel Air. In February of 1969, he leased it to a famous Hollywood couple, the film director Roman Polanski, who had a big hit the year before with the thriller Rosemary's Baby, and his pregnant wife and glamorous actress Sharon Tate. Alto Belli himself lived on the property in the small caretaker's cottage, but he wanted to spend the summer in Europe. And after he learned his hitchhiking passenger was down to his last $1.85 and probably headed back to Ohio, he offered Bill a job. He wanted him to care for his three dogs while he was away. Bill jumped at the chance. In exchange for looking after the two poodles and a large Weimaraner named Christopher, Bill was paid $35 a week and got to live at the caretaker's cottage. Plus, Alto Belli promised to buy him a plane ticket back to Ohio when he returned from Europe at the end of the summer. It might help going forward for you to picture this property, so let me describe it for you. If you're looking at the estate from the road, the main residence where the Polanskis were living was in the middle. To the right was a garage and a large parking lot. To the left of the main house, about 50 yards away, was the caretaker's cottage. There was a swimming pool in the side yard between the main house and the cottage. The front yard was spacious and spanned all the way from the parking lot on the right to the cottage on the left. To get to the cottage from the parking area, there was a long winding walkway along the fringe of the front lawn. Bill moved into the cottage that March. It must have been a fun summer for a wide-eyed Midwestern boy living in the sunny and star-studded community. Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate were Hollywood A-listers. Most of the summer of 1969, Roman was in Europe making a film. And so a couple of their friends spent the season on Cielo Drive with Sharon. They were Abigail Folger, the daughter of the Folger Coffee Company founder and heir to his fortune, and her boyfriend, Wojtek Frykowski. 
Frykowski was a writer and a struggling filmmaker himself. One day, Bill got to watch Frykowski film a scene involving a naked lady in the swimming pool. It was just one of the perks of his dog-sitting job. Bill fell into a routine of staying up late. He did some drugs and was always listening to music. He would usually sleep till early afternoon, then walk down to the mailbox to see if there was anything for him. Most days, he also had an arrangement with the Polanskis to look after Sharon's Yorkshire Terrier and Abigail's Dalmatian. On Friday, August the 8th, 1969, around four in the afternoon, the gardener rapped on the door of the caretaker's cottage and asked Bill to water the grounds during the weekend. It was August in Southern California, after all. Of course, Bill said. Bill was not feeling well. The night before, he had a little too much to drink and it didn't mix well with the marijuana cigarettes he'd had. He didn't expect to be going anywhere. He lounged in the sun a little, working on his already very dark tan. He had no car, so around 8 p.m., he hitchhiked to Sunset Boulevard, where he bought a TV dinner, a Coke, and a pack of cigarettes from a drugstore. Then he hitchhiked his way back home, returning to the cottage around 10 o'clock. He watched a movie, then put his TV dinner in the oven while he snacked on potato chips, waiting for it to finish. Around 11.45 p.m., the Weimaraner Christopher started barking. He always barked when someone was approaching, and sure enough, the bark was followed by a knock on the door. It was Steve Parent, a young local man who had given Bill a lift two weeks earlier when Bill was thumbing for a ride. Steve had showed up unannounced. He worked for an appliance store, and he had a clock radio he was trying to sell for some spare cash. Bill wasn't interested, but they sat and chatted for a few minutes. Then, around midnight, Steve placed a call to another friend using the phone in the cottage. The friend asked for Steve's help putting a stereo together, and Steve agreed to be there in about 40 minutes. That gave him about 15 minutes to kill. So Bill handed him a can of Budweiser, and the pair sat around till about 12.15 a.m. That was a half hour after Steve had arrived. Bill walked him to the door, and Steve left. Then Bill returned to the living room. Now outside, Steve returned to his car and started down the driveway, slowing down at the locked gate that opened onto the street. He was just getting ready to touch the button that would open the gate, when a man came running, yelling at him to stop. These details would be given later by one of the killers, Tex Watson. Watson and his three female co-killers had just arrived on the property. Watson approached the open driver's side window and jammed his twenty-two caliber handgun against Steve's head. 
Steve pleaded with him. Please don't hurt me. I won't say anything. Watson pulled the trigger four times, and Steve Parent became the first victim of the night. Bill said he never heard the shot that killed his visitor. He said he spent the early morning hours writing letters and listening to his record player on medium volume. His playlist included The Doors and a new Mama Cass album. Just before dawn, Bill picked up the phone. Back in the day, there was a number you could call to get the correct time. The cottage had some wind-up clocks, but Bill had never bothered to wind them, so he would simply call to get the time. But the phone didn't work. He tried the phone in the bedroom. It also didn't work. He found that strange, but didn't investigate further. Instead, he sat on the couch and drifted off as the sun came up. I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. Uh, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home. That morning, a maid arrived at the main house to find the bloody scene. She screamed all the way to the neighbors, who called police. They found Steve Parent slumped over the steering wheel. On the lawn, they found Abigail Folger and Wojtek Frykowski, both stabbed to death in the act of fleeing. Sharon Tate and a hairdresser friend, Jay Sebring, were in the living room of the main house. Tate had been stabbed repeatedly and was curled in a fetal position as if to protect her unborn son. Sebring had been stabbed and shot, and his head was covered by a towel. Both victims were connected by a rope that was hung over a rafter and looped around their necks. And the words, Death to Pigs, was written on the front door in their blood. Police cautiously approached the caretaker's cottage, the Weimaraner inside barked wildly. Bill woke, yelled at the dog to quiet down, then slipped off the couch wearing nothing but a pair of pinstriped pants. He looked out the window onto the front porch and saw an officer pointing a rifle at him. The officer told him to freeze. Then Bill spotted a second officer with another rifle leveled at him near the Redwood picnic table. A third officer kicked the front door open. The dog charged him and bit his leg. 
Bill was dragged onto the porch, thrown onto his stomach, ripping his pants, and handcuffed. Bill repeatedly asked, What's the matter? What's the matter? Bill said an officer told him, Shut up. We'll show you. They marched Bill across the lawn to 25-year-old Abigail Folger, who lay upon her back in her nightgown. She was so covered in blood, he misidentified her as the maid. They took him to see Wojtek Frykowski, then over to where his friend Steve had been killed in his car. He didn't even recognize him. They did not take him inside the house, but just outside the front door, he saw the maid and was surprised to see she was alive. He was confused about who was on the lawn. Then he and the maid were driven to the police station. The maid, still hysterical, was taken to a medical center for sedation. Bill, dazed and unable to stop thinking about the bloody bodies he had been taken to see, was led into a cell where he heard an officer say, there's the guy that killed those people. Bill was charged with suspicion of murder. Around 4 p.m., he agreed to speak to investigators without counsel. He said he was confused and scared. Police said he looked like he was in a stupor and quite likely on drugs. Bill's answers were non-responsive and inconsistent. He was given an attorney and questioned again, and parts of his story started to change. When investigators still weren't convinced he was being truthful, Bill agreed to submit to a polygraph. Bill revealed some interesting details. He said at one point in the middle of the night, the dog started barking again, and Bill looked up from the couch and noticed that the bar-shaped handle on the door to the living room had been turned down by something or somebody. He said he hurried to the bathroom and looked out the window to see if he could spot who might have been fiddling with the door handle. That's when he noticed a screen to one of the windows in another part of the house had been cut. Later still, Bill said, okay, maybe he did go out into the backyard at some point during the night. His backyard was not visible from the main house. Still, Bill was unclear about why he would have walked out in the middle of the night. However, this almost certainly happened. Later, one of the killers, Patricia Krenwinkel, told investigators she had checked the guest house, creepy crawled it, she said, and found it to be empty. This revelation led to some speculation that perhaps Bill had heard the gunshots and the screams and ran outside to hide. Maybe he returned to the cottage afterward and pretended not to know anything, fearing for his own life. Or maybe he was out of it, drugged up, and worried that if the police found him like that, they would suspect him of the crime. In any case, investigators figured it was quite likely that the reason the killers did not pursue whoever was living in that house was because they might have presumed Steve Parent was the caretaker, and he was already dead. Bill himself had the same one overriding question that detectives had. He recalled sitting in his cell thinking, 
How the hell am I still alive? On August the 10th, the Manson family struck again. They killed a 44-year-old grocer, Lino LaBianca, and his 38-year-old wife, Rosemary. A killer had carved the word war on Lino's body, and the words helter-skelter were written in blood on the refrigerator. The next day, Bill Gerritsen was released. While his details the night of the Tate murders were confusing, a polygraph found him to be truthful on the question of whether he had killed any of the victims of Cielo Drive. And, of course, he had an alibi for the second murders since he had been behind bars. In Bill's hometown, the story played out on the front page. On August the 11th, a picture of Bill was in the Lancaster Eagle Gazette under a headline, Lancaster Youth, 19, Suspect in Murder of Five Californians. Now, Bill had a minor record in Lancaster. He'd given some other youths alcohol at a homecoming party and was put on probation for contributing to the delinquency of a minor. His mom told reporters Bill had been feeling homesick and was looking forward to the end of summer when he could return home. He wanted to go back to school. Everyone who knew him was shocked that anyone would think him capable of the ritualistic murders of five people. And, of course, they were right. A headline the next day said Bill had been released and that there was no physical evidence tying him to the crime. Now, by year's end, Charles Manson and five of his followers had been arrested and charged with the murder of the seven people. Bill returned home to Lancaster, While waiting for the Manson trial to begin, he married Linda Durr on July the 4th, 1970. Later that month, he flew back to Los Angeles to give testimony. So, what really happened that night? Well, during the trial, Bill held to the story he told investigators that he never heard a scream, nor a gunshot, nor any sound that caused him concern nor did he see anything that was out of the ordinary. Not a thing. But over the years, Bill's story changed a lot. In a 1990s documentary, He acknowledged that he heard loud pops right after Steve Parent left his cottage that night, but he thought they were firecrackers and that maybe Steve was pulling a prank. He acknowledged that he also heard a woman screaming as she ran by the pool, but he said it was a Friday night. The Polenskis had been out that late before. He just thought it was probably a woman being tossed into the pool in good fun. Another time, he told someone he saw people running past his guest house that night, and he heard someone rattle the doorknob before they were scared away by the barking dog. Yet another time, 
he admitted he heard Abigail Folger, as she was being stabbed on the lawn, scream, Stop! I'm already dead! And that he also saw Patricia Krenwinkle as she tried to open the cottage door, then chose to turn around and run away. To the best of my knowledge, Bill never explained why he didn't share those details with investigators. If you look over the internet, you'll find all kinds of outrageous statements attributed to Bill about what really happened that night. There are forums and blogs that say, he said, the people who gave him a ride down to Sunset Boulevard to pick up his dinner that night were hippies that warned him not to return to Cielo Drive. And you'll hear them saying that Bill said he had met the daughter of Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski because she had survived the stabbing of her mother. Frankly, there's no way to know whether Bill really said these things, and they sound a lot like fan fiction. Bill remained in Lancaster the rest of his life. He was married at least three times. He and the woman he married shortly after returning to Ohio divorced after five years and after losing a son who had died from a heart condition. While many no doubt consider Bill a very lucky man, he was haunted by the trauma he experienced that weekend. After the trial was over, he sued the Los Angeles Police Department for false arrest. But in 1974, a jury ruled against him. According to the Los Angeles Times, jurors were sympathetic to him. They called him another victim of the Manson murders. Bill, by the way, died of cancer in 2016. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. Also, like, subscribe, leave a good comment, and tell a friend. That is the best way to help us grow. Ohio Mysteries is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Head on over to evergreenpodcast.com to check out more podcasts from the Evergreen Group. You can also see us featured on KillerPodcasts.com. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.